Today on The Black Goat, we talk about work-life balance. How do you know what's right? How do you know when you have it? And how does that change over a career? And we respond to a letter about whether open science and diversity research are at odds. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Black Goat. Uh, my name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Samin Vizier and Alexa Tullett. And we're recording this while Alexa is under a tornado watch. And Samin literally has people on her roof tearing it off, which means that if I hear the sound of a roof getting Hopefully ripped off, I won't know it where off. it's coming from. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you've got roofers over today, yeah, right? There are big pieces of roof on in the yard now so i don't really know yeah so literally i'm gonna be sitting here like hearing the sounds of roof getting ripped off and just be like shit alexa are you okay <laughs> alexa's gonna be like what it'll be unclear okay. yeah so alexa has promised us that if she actually sees a tornado out her window she'll hit pause on the podcast <laughs> so that uh we don't have to literally watch her get like carried away during the podcast recording. Yeah, exactly. Whether people just get worried about nothing, you know. So until I see it with my own eyes, I don't take action. <laughs> yeah, I, f- I feel like I like I, I used to go when I was a little kid, we would visit my grandparents in North Dakota and there'd be tornado warnings and watches all the time in the summer. And, you know, I used to live outside of Chicago and, you know, when I was a little kid and then when I was older, you know, and I feel like now in the Northwest, it's so fucking idyllic. Like we don't get hurricanes. We don't get tornadoes. Yeah. You know, there I mean, there's a whole you like, did have the tree once... fall through your roof and into oh, that, your kitchen. That is true. Yes. Yeah. But, but there was no warning. <laughs> I, I didn't know that was coming. It just happened. I don't have to like sit and quake. It's the same thing. We have either. earthquakes to worry about, but there'll be no warning, yeah. right? It'll just suddenly one day, like the earth will split open and we'll all die. People but, in, uh, um, yeah. in Tuscaloosa are like very divided about how worried you should be about tornado watches and warnings. So they happen a lot because there are, you know, like often there's like tornado weather in Tuscaloosa. Um, but I guess in 2011, there was a really big tornado in Tuscaloosa. So like when I was applying for a job here and I like Googled images of Tuscaloosa, it was like just pictures of a giant tornado um, and like tornado damage. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so some people like, especially people who experienced that are like, you need to be like fucking ready when this happens. Like you need to take this shit Mm -hmm. seriously. And then there are other people who are just like, yeah, this is like pretty much a great example of, how bad people are at thinking about probabilities. Yeah, absolutely. We shouldn't have wildly different reactions to something whose probability is relatively known. You know, it could be known that it's very uncertain, but at least it's known what the probability is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Alexa, are you on, are you on your laptop right now? Yes. Cause I also noticed like the, the background where we're for people listening at home, we do this over Skype and we can see each other. And I notice every time you move the background shake. So it even looks, <laughs> it looks visually also like there's a tornado <laughs> happening. Like your, your house is shaking in the background. I'm just going to be panicking the whole time. <laughs> I'll start going like this. <laughs> <laughs> State of the art sound effects for our podcast. Mm-hmm. So Sabine, have you finally started listening to podcasts? I figured out why people listen to podcasts. Yeah. So, but but did it persuade you? (laughs) Yes. Well, I think so. Um, So Alexa and I have a grant proposal due like last week. I mean, really, should we should just do it? 
Um, and I told her I would work on it this weekend. So instead I've been doing everything, but so this is going to be like humble bragging because it's going to be like all the things I got done instead of writing the grant proposal, but I like (laughs) went through 400 emails. So you're welcome. All the people who I finally replied to your emails. Um, I, the roofers are fixing my roof. I got, well, in the last few weeks, I also got my sewer line replaced and a gigantic walnut tree trim, but I have more of my property manager to think for that than me. And, uh, I wrote a paper today. My grad student and I did the thing that, like, I think Jennifer Tackett's lab does this, where they get together for an entire day and do a writing retreat. Um, So we sat down, and it's the paper that my grant from nine years ago was based on, and we finally have the data. And so, like, it's been in my head for... Anyway, so we sat down and did that. But the other thing I did, which is related to the podcasting, is I started running again. I haven't run in a million years. So I'm just running one mile a day. Um, and I, the first day I like ran on a trail in the woods and listening to music and I hated it. And the second day I ran on a track and I listened to podcasts and both of those things made it so much better. And that's what I've been doing every day since then, which is like two more days after that. But, um, yeah, like, first of all, I don't know what it says about me that I would rather run on a track than in like the beautiful nature of Northern California, but it's so much better on a track, but also I get why, so I don't really like listening to music. I know it's going to make like everybody hate me, but listening to a podcast is really cool because like, I would so much rather be having a conversation than listening to music. So I like, I wish I could like call you guys while I'm running, but I can't do that. But the next best thing is like, it's like you're in a conversation, but the other person or the other people do all the talking. So you're like, hold on guys, I'm going to go for a run. You guys talk and I'll listen. And then people talk and it's interesting. And it's even better when it's people, you know, so I've been like finding episodes of everything hurts or, other podcasts where they're interviewing people I know and then it's really fun my takeaway is that you're going to do all of the small things that you have to do before you ever get to our grant proposal and then it will take nine years and for us to get a paper exactly (laughs) there was a this was like seven or eight years ago a philosopher won the Ig Nobel for he had written this essay about he called it structured procrastination Uh, have you guys heard about this and basically the idea is like he figured out that the way to be productive was to always have something more important that he ought to be doing (laughs) and he like could just trick himself into like as long as he had something really important that that he could blow off he got like all this shit done because he would just think he was he would trick himself into thinking he was supposed to be working on that and then he'd do everything else instead so that kind of sounds like what you did yeah pretty much except I really do this wasn't a trick I really (laughs) do yeah like yeah it's not something you can blow off you know (laughs) uh let's get back to this you like running on a track better than you like running in nature yeah um i think you need to defend that like, how could you possibly like running on a track? I don't know. And, and can you so defend not liking music while you're at that? Yeah. Team? Yeah. yeah. Come on. No. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I like running on a track better. I mean, it kind of fits with my personality, which also goes with the not liking music. Like, I feel like I'm kind of a boring person. I feel like that could be like a low openness to experience question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I prefer running in circles in a nondescript, like boring place um i mean so it's an outdoor track right across the street from my house so that's super super easy for me to get to it's like it like looks like a place where you would run i don't know it's like it activates my running schema i think and it it's just so convenient and i think the other thing is so like i haven't you know i haven't been a runner since college and i hate running and i like i'm counting the seconds until it's over but I'm doing it by distance. So on a track, so this is the way I've tricked myself. The first lap is warm up, then I run two laps, and then the last lap is cool down. I mean, I don't actually change the pace, but like by thinking of it that way, 
I know when, it, you know, I know when one lap is over and I can change my mental state. Whereas like if you're running in the woods, mm-hmm. you're, I mean, I could look at my app, but yeah, uh, it's not the same. I don't know. It's like knowing exactly that seeing that every step brings me closer to the end is really yeah. satisfying. <laughs> I get that. I, I've always thought that like running for a distance is better than running for a time. Like it's more mm. motivating. Yeah. Um, like, you know, running a kilometer or versus running for six yeah. minutes or something. Um, and that's true that it's like easier to visualize the distance. I think if you're running on a track, I actually mm. don't mind running on tracks at all. I just feel like also you feel kind of cool. Like you feel like an athlete, you know, there's like <laughs> yeah. hurdles on my left and there's a long jump pit on my right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could, I could kind of see, you know, I think there's, there's something about the like repetitive and predictable. Like I have, I have my usual running route and I can sort of zone out. Maybe that's mm-hmm. part of it too. Yeah. And like when I, I've tried to go trail running in Eugene a few times cause there's some like nice trails, but one it's new and two, you just have to be paying attention to the run. Mm-hmm. So like trail running is like the extreme version of like being out in nature, but you literally have to be looking at every step to make sure you don't break your ankle. Yeah. Um, at least when you're going through like a rocky place or whatever. So yeah. I, I could sort of see the appeal. It's kind of like, People, I mean, people go to the gym and they get on a machine yeah, right, right. and they, they do the elliptical or the treadmill yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And there, there, there's nothing changing. Yeah. But you really can kind of like zone out and listen to your podcast or whatever, yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of cool. Like, it's not the main stadium at UC Davis, but it's like a side, uh, like minor stadium. And there's like bleachers and stuff. And of course, there's nobody there. And I wouldn't want to run if there were people there. But it's kind of cool to feel like you're in a special place. I don't know. Yeah. It's, yeah, I, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. I, I've never gone running at hayward field this makes me think because oregon's got this like oh, storied yeah, right, old right, right. track stadium yeah. that like steve prefontaine helped cool. build or whatever yeah. and uh my my son has been running there but i yeah. i haven't um but that that this makes me think i should like yeah go over to, to hayward sometime i mean i hate running and i'm like, like the... excited like i have to wait till six o'clock <laughs> to be allowed to use the track and by the way do you guys think that this whiskey will get in the way of my mile time today <laughs> I shaved, not in the slightest i shaved an entire minute off my i started at 10 minutes 30 seconds the first day and now i'm down to nine well i think 9 40 maybe that's a big difference yeah it's impressive well i mean yeah. I, the first day i was really i mean i'm still out of shape but it's hard to move your body a mile at a like non-walking pace uh, i totally agree like i was sore yeah. in all these places i was like what does that have to do with running mm-hmm yeah, I've I've reached the age where if I lapse out of any kind of exercise for a while, I get really sore when I start up again. Yeah. And, you know, it used to be like, I mean, it's a, it's like a thing. I think it's a fairly common thing with like, if you do like hardcore, like weightlifting or whatever, and you haven't for a while, but I'm now at the age where literally anything, like if I haven't been running in a while, I just go for like a short jog. Then, the, then yeah. like a day or two later, my legs Oh, if I move like a hell. box of cat litter, I'm sore <laughs> the next day. <laughs> I had one of those things. Do you guys ever get that thing where... Uh, like you pull like like some random muscle goes into spasm on your chest and then you can't figure out if it's a muscle or if you're having a heart attack. Like yes. I had that happen to me over the weekend. <laughs> so that happens and to me because all of... the time. I didn't know what that's what yeah. that was. That never but, yeah, happens so to I... me. Oh but no, it's like it was just always, like it was right. Oh, for me it's always yeah. in my upper left quadrant. <laughs> yeah. It was on the right for me, and then I was sitting there, and I was thinking, wait, did I read somewhere that, like, because your heart's on your left, but, like, angina often <laughs> oh, happens across, like, cross-laterally, right. so I was like, is this? Uh-uh. Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. 
Yeah. Well, should we uh, should we move so to our next segment and can read I, our letter? Can I plug real quick the oh, podcast? Oh, yes, 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 so podcast, last, yeah. yeah. A couple days ago, I was on um, Julia Galef's podcast, Rationally Speaking, which is also one of the podcasts I've started listening to on my runs, which makes it sound like I'm running. So I've run a total of four miles so far, so it's kind of <laughs> hard to explain how I've listened to so many podcasts. But um, yeah, I really like her podcast. She has some really cool guests, and it was really, really fun to talk to her. So if you look up Rationally Speaking... There's some great episodes on there. That's awesome. Cool. Cool. Yes, letter. All right. All right, so let's, shall we do our letter? Yes, let's read our letter. All right. Dear the Black Goat, I'm a grad student, and I recently had a conversation with a professor collaborator about the open science movement in which they argued the intentions of the movement are suspect. By this, they referred to, A, how the timing of the open science movement gained traction Uh, gaining traction was just after a rather large wave of diversity research gained visibility, B, the public research attacks towards women and people of color, and C, the disproportionate impact replicability recommendations have on diversity research compared to other subfields, for example, JDM. The overarching argument was that open science may care about increased replicability and reproducibility of psychological research, but also functions to stifle important research that challenges social systems. This has been far from my experience, and I found it concerning that this was a perception in the field and not a unique one. I tried and was unsuccessful in rebutting this critique. How would you have responded? Do you have thoughts on how we can collectively work to shift this perception? Signed, Passionate Bias Researcher. Okay. Who wants to go first? So I, I have a lot of, yeah, I have, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I have exactly um, four. You go first. <laughs> <laughs> so you made a list. I the um I think I think there are some really important issues about the intersection of open science and diversity and representation in research. I worry the thing that worries me about the framing of this is the implication of intent. And that's that's pretty clear in how the letter writer is sort of conveying this concern that they heard from uh, um, from their collaborator that you know they're viewing it that the collaborator is viewing it as like the timing of the open science movement was as diversity research was gaining visibility they're sort of linking it to these deliberate things and i think that that worries me because that is not at all been my it's my own experience certainly but also my observation i mean there's there's pluralism in people who are interested in open science as there is in everything else, and, and there are people with a variety of views on diversity and diversity research, but I don't think that that spectrum is particularly different from what there is in the field at large, and there are a lot of people who are very supportive of diversity research and actually who do diversity research themselves who've been active in open science. So that, sort of, that characterization worries me because I don't really know if somebody, like, to the letter writer who's trying to know how to persuade somebody, I don't know how to prove to somebody that people don't have secret intentions um, that you're convinced that they have. Um, so I'm not sure how to, I mean, you could point to specific individuals who've been active. You could point to organizations like SIPS, which is very, uh, um, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm the diversity co-chair with Joanne Chung of SIPS, so I'm not disinterested in this, but uh, we're working really hard within SIPS to try to address diversity issues within open science, within psychology more broadly, and have had very supportive responses from people. Um, 
So I don't know how to disprove that, but I do think there are a bunch of like substantive issues that we can maybe get into yeah. about sort of the relationship between open and replicable science and kind of diversity in psychological science. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there are sort of like two prongs to this criticism, right? One is the criticism of the open science movement itself. And is that something that, um, discourages diversity in some way within its membership or is it, you know, um, disproportionately composed of a certain type of person? Um, but then there's also the, the other criticism, which is that, um, encouraging, open science and replicability disproportionately impacts um, or makes it more difficult to do research that is relevant to diversity issues, right? Like research on um, harder to collect populations and um, like non-MTurk samples and things like that. Um, to the, I mean, you, you would have more insight into the former, both of you probably. To the latter, I've always sort of wondered, so I think that I think that the idea is that if we are requiring more signs of replicability, more signs of rigor in research, that this will have a more negative impact on people who do research that's more difficult to do. Um, and I guess I've never really, maybe maybe really fully understood that argument. Um, I agree that the those recommendations often... Uh, they often require people to do research more slowly. Um, and maybe uh, people who do research on hard-to-collect populations are already worried about um, the ability to do research quickly. But I guess it's not clear to me why the impact is not just that everybody has to do research more slowly. Um, and so the, the relative advantage or disadvantage that any given subfield has right now in terms of speed with publishing will just sort of like stay the same. Um, so like the rank order of how much fields publish and the expectations for fields publishing will stay the same, even if everybody slows down, but maybe you guys know about, uh, a more nuanced version of that where it's, there is supposed to be like this interactive effect. Um, I mean, I think it's a matter of priorities, right? So like if you prioritize replicability and openness, then you have to shift other parties down to make room for that one at the top and so one of those could be like diversity of populations in your sample diversity of methods things like that um but i think often when that gets talked about there's like a retroactive painting the past as if we really cared about those issues and we were really proactive about making sure we had good representation of mm -hmm. participants and methods and everything else but i've coded articles with rich lucas and and our grad students and we didn't find, you know, we went back to before the replicability crisis and there was never much representation of those things. And I do think, yeah, I think that it would be maybe interesting for us to do an episode where our main topic is on efforts within the open science and replicability movement to address things like the weird samples problem and underrepresentation of researchers and representation of, of participants and other things like that. Because I think, yeah, that might be the best answer to this question of like is open science either neglecting or actively trying to impede that kind of research or those researchers um is to like rebut it with well these are the things we're doing what are other people doing i don't know i mean that sounds a little tacky but like i do think that it's yeah when there's differences in perception it's good to look to the facts and 
there's a pretty long list of facts of things that have come out of SIPs and the open science community to try to increase, especially with regard to the um, underrepresented groups as participants in research. Um, And I think, you know, it's hard to know how to tackle the issue of underrepresented groups as researchers. That's not an excuse not to do it. But I think we are committed to that and, and have shown that commitment behaviorally in our programming and in our outreach and um, financial support and things like that. Um, but yeah, so ultimately, yeah, I mean, it's hard to prove that we don't secretly, like Sanjay said. I mean, and I feel like as personality psychologists too, I don't know if you resonate with this, Sanjay, but I feel like our motives are always kind of suspect. Like, why aren't you studying something that is going to make the world a better place? Um, and that that is a hard question to answer. I mean, yeah. Although there, there, there are people in personality psychology who are studying <laughs> social issues. There are people yeah, in personality yeah. psychology, especially no, if you take no, a, no. a kind of a more inclusive definition of personality psychology, include like identity researchers and people right, like right. that. So, I, I mean, I've heard, I've heard the concern from people who do cultural diversity and ethnic minority psychology kinds of work that they feel like the calls for, for example, paying more attention to power for larger samples are going to have a disparate impact on their fields because they say that, you know, the samples that they work with are just inherently harder to recruit. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the sort of uh, the burdens of meeting new expectations won't be equally distributed. Um, interestingly, that's not I've discovered a uh, a uniform view within the community of people that do ethnic minority psychology. So I, I'm a co-author on a manuscript that was recently rejected where I won't name the person they were assigned review, but I'll sort of respect that process. But, you know, somebody had a, you know, and basically this was a, a, a manuscript where one of the issues, we're talking about sort of how does representation and sort of, rigor, open science, replicability kinds of issues, how to make those fit together. And we were trying to address this issue of sort of hard to reach samples. And and this reviewer said, look, I'm a, I publish in these journals. I'm a member of this research community. Um, I don't agree that it's harder to get samples of uh, um, African-Americans or, you know, sexual minorities or, or other kinds of things. And so um, you know, we, and it was, it was one of those things where it's like, part of my response when I, this letter came like a day or two after we'd gotten that rejection. And part of my response to this person was, can you please ask your collaborator to write a blog post <laughs> where they say this so that when we're trying to like write a manuscript mm-hmm. where we're saying this is a concern, we can cite it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so, so, but I do think, I think that there are, one of the issues that I think this is why I care so much about making SIPs more inclusive and trying to like reach out and get more people in is that the field is changing right now and people are talking about, you know, people are sort of recognizing there are these problems and then saying, how can we change? And and the way, the things that people think of are the things that are relevant to their experience, relevant to the kinds of research they do. So one, one example is that there is a recognition that low power, you know, smaller sample sizes, if we're talking about between subjects, inferences or individual differences or what have you, um, smaller samples in that context mean greater uncertainty in your inferences. And that when you combine that with publication bias, it means biased inferences. Um, and the smaller the samples, the larger the bias, right? This is a recognition. As a result, there have been a lot of recommendations that have simply said, we need larger samples. 
Um, one of the places that shows up is in registered reports. So I went back, I was reading, um, actually assigned for my class, Chris Chambers is one of his 2014 editorials about like how a registered report's supposed to work. And one of the criteria is supposed to be studies should have very high power. Now, in a registered reports format, the biasing influence of low power is gone. And registered reports are actually a really terrific opportunity to say, okay, yes, yeah. we, can, we can acknowledge greater uncertainty with smaller samples, but they'll be, be, we can shield to a substantial degree against publication bias. This may actually be a really terrific place to say, if you're running research that's worth running, that you just can't get a larger sample. The registered reports format is really terrific. But, you know, and people have now, and I think I've seen Chris on social media more recently say, yeah, that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. But the way it was initially talked about was just assuming, oh, of course you're going to address power, right? And, and this is my concern about wanting the open science movement to be more inclusive is that the more people who have these concerns who are involved from the very beginning in, like, you know, saying, okay, we agree on this being a problem. Now, like, I want to be a contributor to crafting a solution because I understand how it's going to impact this research community. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. And the, and you see that the, the mistake that gets made when that doesn't happen is people craft solutions that aren't inclusive. Mm -hmm. um, and then people get turned off. Now, the, the problem is that some people, they see the the diagnosis and they in their head they go to the solution as being it's going to hurt me and then they don't want to they, they 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 push back against the diagnosis and so you end up with this conflict where people say oh this open science stuff they're making they're exaggerating the problems or, or whatever and and that's something that i'm really concerned about trying to address because yeah. yeah i just i worry that it becomes this fracturing force that that sort of the initial people are like, I see this problem, here's this solution, it doesn't work for this other group of people, so they then don't want to buy into the whole process in the first place. And so that's what I think we really have to push back against. But I, I so I, I'm very sympathetic to where people are coming from, but I, I think the suspicion of motives is right. well, counterproductive. What I was going to say is that, like, what you're talking about is a more reasonable version, I think, of the concern about the tension between diversity representation versus open science. But if we're focusing on the letter, I think what the letter writer is conveying through from the, what she heard is something I think a little bit less um, charitable. Um, so I think like a diversity researcher or a researcher who's a member of an underrepresented group could have very sincere, honest concerns about these issues, like the ones you've been expressing, Sanjay. But I think what what this person is expressing is something a little bit less like, I don't want to say less sincere, but less fair towards, I think yeah. the, the movement. But I, th I think what I think this is, I, I think the, the more suspicious responses would be mitigated if the person who's being described in this letter saw members of their own research community more visible and active yeah. in working on open science, because it would be harder for them to feel like, this is this other research community, yeah. this, you know, these people who are kind of coming yeah. in and telling us so how to do I business. Agree. So I, I do think they're connected. I agree, but they might also be connected in the opposite causal direction. Like it might be that this is an obstacle to us being able to reach out to members of those communities yeah. if no, their advisors I, I are telling them these people are ways. trying to tear you down. Like, I mean, so like one thing that I think like kind of breaks my heart is this idea that the open science movement is 
wanting to stifle research that challenges social systems. And I find that kind of ironic, right? Because I feel like the open science movement feels like the senior people who are resisting reform are resisting challenges to social systems and other kinds of systems. And then they think that we're trying to, right? They think we're trying to maintain one kind of status quo and we think they're trying to maintain a different kind of status quo. It's kind of ironic. Um, But I think that, I, I don't like I, I sometimes I mean I, I really appreciated this letter for a lot of reasons but one of them is that I've heard this expressed not directly to me but it's not the first time someone has told me a very credible report of something like this being expressed and I think it's important to talk about the fact that this this is getting repeated and told to earlier career researchers who then might want to stay away from SIPs or open science because they believe right the people who are saying yeah. this mm-hmm. And I'm not sure the so people who are saying it believe it, to be honest. Yeah. Like, there's a part of me that worries that this is yeah. a strategy to keep people from... Or, or it's a, yeah, it's a half strategy, yeah. but it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. So yeah, if, right. if, you say, if you say the open science community doesn't care about the work that you do, then right. people won't engage with it, and then they won't... Yeah, and it also implies, like, by the way, if you join it. them, like, I'm going to think this about you, too. <laughs> like, it's... Right. Yeah. I don't think it's meant that way, but it, it does have that implication. And yeah. so, I mean, like to speak to the the writer's direct final question about how, like what, like she tried to rebut this critique um, and had a hard time. I think that one of the more effective, I, I don't think it actually it works, but I think the real answer to like, if you're critiquing research that's trying to help people, help diversity, help inequality, help curb stereotyping and prejudice, stuff like that, then aren't you like undermining those efforts and so on? I think like the most sincere answer I can give is no. If you love that cause and you care about it, you will want it to be studied in an effective, reproducible way. And mm-hmm. we don't don't want resources to be spent on things that we should already, you know, we should have found out by now aren't fruitful or won't stand up over time. And so I think that I mean, no one. I think no one who thinks what this person thinks is going to be swayed by that. But I think that is the honest answer. Like I do care a lot. I do. I think I share many, many, many of the values of diversity researchers. Um, and I think that when I, if I think that something is going nowhere and has been based on flawed evidence and, and so on, like I would want to make sure that we don't keep spending resources on that, that could be spent on a more productive line of research. Yeah. Also, um, going back to your point earlier about, like, making priorities, um, I, I think that that point about, like, prioritizing concerns about replicability and open science and, like, other things that might be um, on the surface at odds with that, like collecting harder-to-collect samples or something like that, um, that, that holds true if, like, the way that we that the way that our publication system works and the way that um, incentive structures work stays the same, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it holds true if we continue to prioritize publishing a lot, publishing very quickly. Um, and that's also something that, and, and that's, I think it's fine to, to make the assumption that that holds true for now and to recognize that there could be a trade-off f- for now as well. But that's mm-hmm. also something that a lot of people who are part of the movement are trying to shift as well. So a lot of the changes in, like suggested changes in incentive structures and also like new formats for articles, right? Like you were mentioning registered reports, Sanjay. And also like if you just take, so I think um, if you take sort of traditional 
in lab social psych research as something that's been considered like a pretty easy kind of research to do. I mean, the norm for sort of like the the prototype for a really good social psych paper used to be this like JPSP seven study, you know, manuscript. And that would also be really hard to do now following all of the, you know, new rules of replicability, right? Um, but there are also people who are in the replicability movement who are suggesting changing that. Like, you know, Willie talks about how we shouldn't value these like underpowered multi-study papers as much as we used to and we should consider doing like really high-powered one-study papers or two-study papers. So I think, yeah, uh, while they might, some of the recommendations for change might present a tension for now, I think also people are very conscious of that tension and trying to change things at a higher level um, to reduce that tension for people. Yeah. I mean, I think this goes to Samin's point about challenging social systems right. that, and this, this has been a general theme in the last, you know, 10 years or so, or eight years or however long it's been where you propose one thing and people object because they, they think everything else is going to stay the same. So you, you know, you mm -hmm. say we need to have, you know, larger samples and people say, well, then I won't be able to publish as much. And you're like, yeah, we also think you shouldn't mm -hmm. have to publish as much. Right. Um, and, and that the incentives should change in, in relation to that. But I, I mean, I think this just goes back to like, we like the system is changing, right? Mm -hmm. the, there's just, there's too much momentum behind it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people in the open science movement are proposing things and are, are not just proposing, but are actually changing the system. And the more we have engagement from people who care about all different kinds of research, the more that the new system will reflect their concerns. Right. I mean, this is why at SIPS we do the diversity rehack, right, where every hackathon session they come to a session where we say, okay, let's look this over and figure out how to make this work for as many people as possible mm -hmm. so that reforms that are birthed at SIPS will work for as many people as possible. But that that's only as good as the set of ideas that are in that room. Um, and that are represented there. And so I guess one thing I would say is tell your advisor or, or collaborator, whoever it is, to, like, come to SIPS. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the other thing, for the more sort of immediate thing that I'd give as advice is, like, I don't know that you're going to persuade somebody about people's intentions in the movement, but if you, the more you understand the substantive reasons why so, like, you, you might not be able to persuade this person about the open science movement as this sort of amorphous blob of, like, mm -hmm. white bros yelling on the Internet or whatever they think it is. Um, but you can say, like, hey, I want to pre-register the study, and here's why. And you can ground it in, like, you know, you don't have to refer to the open science movement. You don't have to say so-and-so said so on the Internet, but say, like, I really want to make sure that whatever inferences we draw are right so that we're serving this community that we're doing research with. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can ground it, you know, if the, the letter writer, I suspect, you know, because they're trying to persuade people, like that would be an authentic position for them to take. And so sort of grounding it in the substantive reasons, you don't have to convince, maybe you're not going to convince your senior collaborator about the open science movement, but you might be able to convince them of the value of, you know, doing things that will make your inferences more sound of, of sharing your data when that's possible to do in an ethical way, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I have one more point that's much less important than all the other points that have been made, but um, <laughs> I'm going to say it anyway. So I hope you guys didn't have a lot to say about work-life balance, but um, <laughs> I had my last meeting of my replicability undergrad seminar last week. And it was like, I think 
right after we got this letter and and we were gonna listen to the radio lab episode on stereotype threat anyway so we did that and so then i also read them the letter because i thought it fit nicely with that that episode and so i asked them you know we we're going to discuss it and talk about what they thought and one of my students asked but like so what are some examples of attacks against diversity research specifically and i actually couldn't think of that many like i think that in my mind and i could definitely just have missed you know a lot of replication efforts and so on but i think i buy the narrative that social priming has been targeted more than other areas that social psych in general has been targeted more than other areas but i'm not sure unless you unless by virtue of the fact that social psych has been targeted more then that just means that diversity research gets targeted more i agree with that but i'm not sure i can think of too many examples other than stereotype threat um i think of like high would profile maybe lump power posing into that wouldn't they diversity because power- research I think power posing is supposed to be like, it's, it's framed. I don't know. I've never actually watched the 10 talk. But I think it's framed as like a way of empowering disempowered people. So okay. I do think people think of that when they, I, I could be wrong. I don't know. I wonder if people would have thought of that. You know, like if you ask independently of replicability of this, this particular context of like trying to think of things that have been targeted that are, diversity research if you had asked yeah i don't know but i mean i do i agree with you samin that like if you look at the the big topics the particular topics that uh, certainly for me that the ones that come to mind are things like ego depletion Mm -hmm. um you know the the sort of facial feedback Mm -hmm. smiling with a pen in your mouth um, a lot of embodiment research, the social priming, which I guess is kind of embodiment-ish. I, yeah, I, I know that that um, uh, Amy Cuddy has talked about power posing in the context of like something to help women or other disempowered mm-hmm. groups, but the I think the original research was very much in the sort of embodiment tradition um, and not not originally pitched that way. Um, so yeah, no, I mean I think that there are you know. There are some some topics within social psychology that are and and yeah I think stereotype threat has been one that's probably the closest to this but no I think you're right Samin that it's I don't know but I would be interested to hear from yeah, this person what they think oblivious. the pattern is yeah, maybe we're yeah. yeah maybe we're we're missing yeah. an important angle yeah yeah mm-hmm. well cool should we uh, speaking of balance should we mm-hmm. <laughs> leave some some time to talk about work life balance that was, a, uh, that was a good letter we should have just done that, that was a hell of a letter maybe I mean I maybe we should do a, we a full episode we all, yeah, yeah on on diversity and open science yeah. I, I would be very interested in that mm-hmm. cool um, well thank you to passionate bias researcher I hope we were able to to help you uh, or at least sort of give you some ideas to, to continue your conversation um, and yeah if you're listening and you want to send us a letter you can reach us by email letters at the you can send us letters to be read and responded to on the podcast like we just did or just feedback or ideas or rants or whatever you want to send us um, and we really appreciate getting those uh, we read all of them and I think we respond to all of them I think Alexa and Samin respond to all of them um, uh, you can we also find us to. yes <laughs> you can find us on the web www.theblackgoatpodcast.com or on twitter at blackgoatpod and facebook at facebook.com slash blackgoatpod 
So, yeah, so for our, our main topic, we wanted to talk today about work-life balance, which is a topic that we has come up a bunch of times in different ways, but never been kind of in relation to other things. It's never been a focused topic. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, but we, it's, it's, a, it's a big one. It's one that deserves revisiting, even if we have talked about it before, because we talk a lot. I feel like we've had a fair number of episodes more generally about, like, being a... We like to like, talk about ourselves. Reasonably. That's what you're trying to say. <laughs> we like to talk about ourselves. We like to talk about, like, issues related to sort of being a, a not entirely unhealthy human being as an academic. Um, and this, this relates to that as well. Um, do you guys feel like you have... Good work-life balance, bad work-life balance. So actually, I was like, um, I was out like recently, and I saw ran into a friend of mine who is also, um, he's a psychologist, um, but he works in the the nursing department at uh, at Alabama, and he was like, he was touting me as an example of somebody who has really good work-life balance to a friend of ours and I was like should I be worried like is he, is he saying that because like a he knows that compliment. Yeah. yeah Alexa's really good at not doing work like she can not do work all the yeah, time yeah I see her not doing work like all the time I mean um, what does that say right there right that like yeah. saying know, oh you yeah. have yeah, good work-life balance could yeah. be like a dig at somebody right, right. that I think Alexa, I think you're like one of the most efficient people I've ever met. Like, I think you get a lot done, but it's true that you don't need that many hours to get as much done as a lot of other people. Are you sure? I feel like if you worked with me for a day, like, (laughs) I'm pretty um, sure I do. I feel like my work life balance is, um, is where I would like it to be. I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a key issue, I think, in, in talk thinking and talking about work-life balance, which is like, so there's so much social comparison. Mm-hmm. And so how do we really know? Yeah. How do you know? And, but you look around and there's always somebody. So there's two comparisons. There's two killer comparisons. One is there's the social one. There's always somebody who's working harder than you. Yes. And then the second is to your goals. You always could be working more than you are. Mm-hmm. And, and their academia really sucks at like giving you context to say when's too much because you're, you're always, it always feels like if you could be getting done, more done, you'd be rewarded for it. Or there's a way to sort of narrow your blinders to make that seem like just the only thing in front of you. And, and yeah, there, there's always somebody who's like publishing more papers, winning more awards, whatever it is you want to try to compare yourself to that it's so easy to fall into that trap yeah and and that's where the balance falls in because it's like you don't look around and go like there is somebody i mean maybe you do maybe this would mm-hmm. be a, a healthy thing if we did it more you don't look around and go like there is somebody who's spending more you, time with their friends than i am i Alexa wish i was more like friend. that person. <laughs> <laughs> you should post more instagram pictures of not working so you can make everyone else feel better Alexa. No, i'm just teasing i think you i think you get a lot done I don't know how much time you spend and I don't care. I think you, you're on top of things and it's impressive, especially because you teach more than I do. And I don't think I could do that. Um, I like, I've talked about this before that my work life balance is where I want it to be. But also like, I, I don't, I don't think I work that many hours, but I think I, I like that my life revolves around work. It's not a problem for me at all. It's like, Mm -hmm. I like it. Um, so yeah, like the question means something different for me, but I was reflecting on this recently. So I actually, so I don't, I don't think I work that many hours. I think I work, you know, a full schedule, but like not more. Um, and 
I, I almost never feel like I should be working more. Like it doesn't seem healthy to me. Like it's just, it seems very, very obvious to me that the world would not be better off if I worked more. Like I would just be crabbier and make worse decisions and whatever. Um, but I do feel like I should get more done. Like I should fulfill the commitments I've made. And I often don't like I often miss deadlines. I often overcommit, et cetera. And I was thinking recently, like the problem is not that I feel like I work too much. The problem is I feel like I don't get, stuff done i have too much that i'm supposed to be doing and mm-hmm. luckily i don't do it otherwise i'd you know be burnt out and run myself to the ground but so it's good that i don't do it all but i need to find a way to at least i mean this isn't you know everybody has the same problem of like trying to find a way not to commit to so much um i think that's the real so for me like that's the real problem in academia and i'm sure many people work too much i don't want to minimize that problem i think that's a real problem too but even if you can get yourself to not work too much you still have this problem of expectations for you to get 80 hours worth of work a week done even if you only work 40 hours a week and Mm. i mean to some extent like we all understand that so like i'm a week late in my reviews pretty consistently and i shouldn't admit that as an editor but like i know that the world will go on like it's it's not the end of the world um but yeah so like why do we set up a system where it's like understood that people are going to miss deadlines and you're gonna end up backing out of a third of the things you commit to or whatever i mean i don't I don't back out to very many things, but, um, but I find there's just equivalence of that, that I'm doing all the time. And that that's stressful, even if I'm not working too many hours. Yeah. That's something I I want to fix. I think probably to a lesser degree than you, because I think I'm less committed to things than you are. Um, but I feel the same, like going back to Sanjay's distinction between like, you know, um, the like social norm versus your goals. Like, I do feel like I want to do more. Um, But at the same time, I don't feel like I should work more hours of the week, really. Um, And I also feel like if I did work more hours of the week... So this semester is, like, um, for me, more relaxed than last semester. But last semester was, uh, for me, like a pretty busy semester because I was teaching at the prison in addition to what I would normally do. And I, I think, like, realistically, last semester, I probably worked between 40 and 50 hours a week, um, but not, like, a crazy amount. But I was, like, that, to me, felt like a lot of work. So I don't, I don't think that realistically I can maintain, like, working, like, 50 to 60 hours a week regularly. Um, so I feel convinced of that. But, um, but I still would. I still feel like there are things that I should do that I don't do. Mm-hmm. Like... I can't remember, outside of, like, doing a review, I can't remember the last time I've, like, read a paper <laughs> from beginning <laughs> to end. <laughs> like, I'm so terrible. glad to hear you say that, Alexa. That's, no, like, I... I should cut that. I, f- I feel <laughs> like, yeah, sometimes I'll have these these moments when I'll feel like I can't remember the last time I read a paper just for the sake of reading a paper. Like, I, I read papers for reviews. I read papers when I teach. I read mm-hmm. papers... For my lab when we're going to discuss but it. But to be fair, um, that probably averages to like several papers a week between teaching and reviewing and Yeah, so but on. it's not, I'm not, I'm not like reading shit I, know, I should be reading. I know. Well, like I mean, re- probably a lot of what you that, review is stuff you would choose to read otherwise. Uh, kind of, yeah, but, but no, but like, like I should, no, but I'm just saying that, that the like, 
just choosing something to read because I'm interested in reading it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would definitely be a different menu of things. And that's that is something that that like I'm I'm really glad to hear you say that, Alexa, because I I've <laughs> that's definitely that true for me like, too. I, I just don't feel any guilt something. about it. <laughs> but you have yeah. so many obligations to read papers because mm-hmm. you have so much editing work. I feel like you do end up reading like several relevant papers a week probably. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But I think that I mean the, this issue of like I I want to be working more like getting more done but not necessarily working more hours is that tension I don't between want those that. two I things want less is tough work that's expected of me to get done. <laughs> well that, that's what I mean. All right. Yeah, yeah. I, well I mean I right, get a not want to be but the expectation you you you're done. sort of balancing this expectation of like or this force towards like there's always more you could be doing right. with the like wanting to sort of hit the brakes. I think that's a that's a tough thing, and it, and it's hard to estimate. I mean, Alexa, you meant you were talking about hours. Like, there was there was some Twitter blow up a month or two ago or three about like professors claiming to work eighty hours a week or something. And and one of the things that, you know, when that whole thing was going down, that there's there's research which I'd come across before um, that like when you ask people how many hours a week they work. Um, and then you ask them to keep a diary, it turns out people overestimate. And it's kind of like the more they work, the more they overestimate. Mm-hmm. So, And I, that's probably like in these studies, because, that's probably because people who work less are like hourly employees, so they know exactly how much they work. Well, and also 50 people, hours a week feels so much harder, I think, than like 45 yeah. and 45. Like it, yeah. the, the difference is way more than what it sounds like, I think. Yeah. But so, so, so that's one, of, I think that's part of one of the things that contributes to like, fucked up academic cultures people yeah i don't think people are like consciously lying like i know i only mm-hmm. work 45 but i'm gonna say 80 or yeah. whatever but i think people people really do believe it but they're just bad at estimating but then you hear other people's estimates and you're like well shit i better work you know 80 hours a week too and it's like no you would die if you worked 80 hours a week mm-hmm. two weeks in a row although let's um, acknowledge that there are people who work 80 hours a week like yeah i know okay. that there are All people right. who but, like um i I'm thinking of like one friend I had who I guess started at a law firm and he was like very like adamant Mm -hmm. about saying Mm -hmm. like, yes, I am like at the office for 80 Mm -hmm. or a hundred hours a week and it's awful. And those people are miserable. Yeah. Yeah. He sounded very miserable about it. It's true. Mm. And they're not, they're not getting, you know, the hours 50 through 80 are not good, high quality, productive hours. They're, they're just, they're billing a client so they can do it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Or maybe they are and they're like really doing high quality work for that much time, but that's just sort of like torture to put someone through, which I think law firms recognize. Yeah. Yeah. There was one thing you said, Sanjay, that um, was interesting to think about, which is like the whole, you know, there's always someone publishing more than you and getting more awards than you and stuff like that. And one of the things we were going to talk about was how work-life balance has shifted over different phases of your career and over like different phases of your life. Um, And that's something when I think about that, when I think about my past self that used to care about my peers who like got PhDs around the same time as me and were publishing more or getting more awards it makes me so happy to remember that I used to care about that and to feel how little I care now and feel that contrast. And that's definitely something that changed. And I think it, mm-hmm. it changed pretty close to around the time I got tenure. I can't remember if it was a little before or a little after. And I don't know if tenure, getting tenure was causally implicated. I think it probably was. Um, it, it's so nice to not care. And I think I was aware at the time that I shouldn't care, but I couldn't control it. And I don't know mm-hmm. what, I, w- I don't know what advice I could give to somebody about how not to care. I don't have any insight into how I was able to stop caring, but, and I I'm well, obviously don't care zero now, but like 
so much less. Yeah. I was hoping you'd have some advice for this. <laughs> I, I feel like I, I sort of go back and forth on like caring and not caring, feeling bad and not feeling bad. I, I think the 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 way that I care the most these days is because of my graduate students. Mm. So because we collaborate that I want yeah. them to be able to get jobs and I don't want to be the one slowing them down. And, you know, if I was, you know, I, 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 I do like, that's my biggest, I think, source of guilt around productivity or, or not guilt exactly, but, you know, concern about around productivity yeah. is just like, I want to make sure I'm doing right by my graduate student collaborators mm. Um, I, yeah, I feel like if that, if that wasn't an issue, maybe I would be much more at peace. Although I, I, there is like a like comparative, competitive part of me that would never be able to stop looking around me and, and every once in a while going, oh, shit, I'm not, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not like these external markers that I tell myself I don't care about. Yeah. I can't really fully abandon. I think one thing that really had a huge impact on me, and I remember the specific event was being at a conference and hanging out with somebody who like is roughly my year and we were both like yeah maybe it was a year or two before tenure or something and he was like obsessed with comparing himself to other people and like why did this person get this and I didn't and blah 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 and I think like mm -hmm. spending a couple of days with him like I'm seeing what it's like to be him I was like oh like that's not fun like I don't want to not just <laughs> I don't want to be that like from a moral standpoint whatever but like I wouldn't enjoy that. That that's like he's just yeah. torturing himself. It's like masochism. And I think mm -hmm. when I saw that extreme version of it and from an outsider's perspective of like he would just be so much happier if he just like accepted that he wasn't going to get everything. Um yeah, like something something switched for me. I mean, it was that wasn't the only thing, but that was a big part of it. Do you think Yeah. So to sort of play devil's advocate, do you think that like that switch would have happened if you didn't have sort of a lot of sources of like validation that you're doing a good job at your job? Yeah, probably not. I mean, I think it helped ha to have, yeah, get lucky and get some things. But actually, I think the other thing that helped was finally failing over and over again. Like, I think I got so lucky earlier in my career that I was afraid. It's like, you know, until you fall, yeah. you're afraid to fall, that kind of thing. Yeah, so yeah. I think like there were a couple of things I really, really wanted and didn't get. Um, and most of those, not that many things like that happened early in my career. There were a few, um, but they happened a lot more frequently starting like right around the time yeah. I was going up for tenure, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Not to say that I didn't also get great things sure. I was really lucky to get, but, um, yeah. but those, like it helped to see that like, okay, well after like a week or two, I don't actually care anymore. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't be like so worried about it in anticipation. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. yeah I do think that over time like I think that so I think that I care less and less over time and, and compare myself to other people less and less and I don't think that um, that it's like necessarily correlated with objective signs of success and in some ways it might be like negatively correlated for me um, but uh, yeah I think there's something about just like like you say, sort of becoming familiar with what it means to be comparing yourself to other people and what it looks like to be the person who's doing that. And also like, just, just like coming to the realization that that's a never ending process. Mm -hmm. I think eventually you just sort of get tired of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think also the, 
you know, we're talking, you know, the, the topic is work-life balance, but we're, we're talking all about the, like, the, the, the pulls on the work mm-hmm. side of that, right? And, and I think also having pulls on the life side of that that you care about helps keep some perspective, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. I, um, you know, I still feel that tension, but for me, my family is really important. And so I don't, like, I, I'm not sitting, when I'm hanging out with my family, when I'm like, you know, going, playing with my son or something, I'm not thinking like, oh, God, shit, I have to like, you know, go in the backyard and play Calvin ball with my son. Yeah. And I really wish I was yeah. like working on a review right now. Yeah. You know, it's just like in those moments, it's like, no, I want to play fucking Calvin ball yeah. with my kid, you yeah. know, and uh, like having, so I think the, you know, part of the having good work-life balance is having the life parts feel in whatever way it yeah. matters to you, um, feel like they're worth, taking away from your work so you you it, yeah. and for me it, it has it doesn't make the tension go away and so, sometimes it can actually make it harder to navigate because i'm like oh both these things are important but it i think it mitigates a lot of the like tendency to just like slide into sort of mindless overwork yeah, yeah. i have a kind of a rule with myself that i don't decide whether or not to accept like a social or fun thing based on whether or not i've done the work i need to do i accept purely or almost purely based on how much i want to do the other the fun thing um And I think that helps a lot because then, I mean, so I have a pretty high threshold. Like I'm not going to say, well, partly I just don't like going out that much, but I'm not going to say yes to everything just because it's there. But if it's something I'm like, Ooh, yeah, that sounds like I want to do that. Then. So like last weekend, the weekend before last, um, I had been traveling for two weeks and I hadn't had a chance to catch up on editing and I had set aside Sunday to catch up on editing. And then Vibka asked me if I wanted to go for a hike and I'm like, okay, I'm out of shape. I love Vibka. <laughs> like it's beautiful out. It's like 70 degrees out mm-hmm. and sunny. I'm definitely doing this. And it meant that because of teaching and stuff, like I didn't get to editing for like two or three more days and that sucks. I'm sorry to the authors who had to wait an extra few days, but like, yeah, so I feel like if I if I focus instead on how much I want to do the other thing, it makes it easier to make that decision. It doesn't maybe that means I make the wrong decision sometimes, but I really like that way of thinking about it. Not like, can I afford to do this? But like, do I want to? And if I want to badly enough, then just do it. Right. Yeah, it sounds really straightforward to think of it in that way. But I think it's very easy to get into sort of a habit where you're like thought process about how you should be spending time and how you should prioritize your time just like puts work at the top like right. you need to get all of your work done and then you can but that's why i don't make it a comparison stuff. right it's like right a, yeah, yeah it's a sequential decision not a parallel decision so it's not like should i edit or should i go on the hike it's like do i want to go on that do i definitely want to go on the hike yes okay <laughs> and then yeah don't compare it to to editing yeah um and maybe sense. that's yeah easier said than done i don't know i i have a question for you guys about vacation Um, do you guys go on vacation and do no work? So I sort of did that this week. Um, and often if I go on vacation and do no work, I feel pretty guilty, but this week I don't really feel that guilty about it. It was our spring break this past week. Did you answer emails? Um, sort of. So I Did you open your computer? Uh, so actually I had like a break in between. So I had a week. Um, and then I was like, I did, I went to San Antonio for the first half of the week. I had Wednesday at home and then I went to the beach for the second half of the week. Um, and I didn't do any work aside from responding to a couple of emails in San Antonio, didn't bring my computer, 
And then I didn't do any work at the beach and I didn't bring my computer, but I did work in between. Okay. I think that's, I think I do stuff almost, yeah, I always bring my computer, but it's not that rare that I don't open it if it's a three day trip and I'll like answer the urgent emails by, on my phone. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, yeah, it's been a while since I've done a lengthy, completely unplugged trip although i have done them and and i think there's a lot of value in doing that um yeah like it's it's getting harder and harder because you have email and everything else on uh on your yeah, phone right. nowadays right so i mean i remember like this was like 10 or 11 12 years ago um going on a fairly lengthy vacation like it was a couple of weeks i think um and i you know, didn't have a laptop with me, didn't have, this was like, we were Greek Island hopping, um, didn't, didn't have any kind of access. And then like in the middle, I just thought I should check my email just no. in case there's something burning. <laughs> and I checked and there <laughs> was an email thing. from a collaborator that like, can we like, uh, scrap everything we've been doing. Like, I hope you're enjoying your vacation, Sanjay. Like, when you get back, um, I'm thinking we need to, like, scrap the entire thing we've been doing and completely rebuild from the ground up, which was not what I wanted to do. And it just, like, I lost a day of vacation ruminating mm. over this email. And I was just like, why the fuck did I check yeah, my email? That's a bummer. Um, so I am very good at so, not reading yeah. emails. If I, if I know, that one's hard because it <laughs> snuck up on you. But, like, they're specific yeah. people or specific topics that i know will mm -hmm. ruin my day and so yeah. i'm really good at not reading those even on vacation i once went yeah a yeah. week in hawaii without reading any i like i archived it i knew i had to come back to it but i didn't read it um yeah i think i need to what i need to start doing now because i've noticed like it's i always have a backlog and then i can't get caught up afterwards mm -hmm. is i need to i need to just block out like the second day after I'm back because the first right. day I won't be able to right. not look at email or whatever but like just make sure I don't have any meetings the second day I'm back from a trip and just say that is catch-up day yeah. and you know um nobody n you know nobody can meet with me about anything important yeah. that day yeah. um because that's really hard yeah mm -hmm. yeah I mean like to your question about vacations Alexa like I don't think I would want to go on vacation and completely unplug mm -hmm. like i enjoy knowing what's going on on twitter and mm -hmm. i want to read my emails because yeah like i tell my grad students if they have a quick question just like put urgent in the subject line and i'll i'll answer it um even if i like i'm in a meeting all day or whatever um i like knowing that i that there aren't like super big surprises where like everyone's like oh wait yeah. we need to put everything on hold until we hear this like very quick answer from samin or whatever not that that's going to happen but mm -hmm. So, like, I, I kind of, I feel like I have a pretty good balance when I travel where, like, I keep up with the most urgent stuff, but I don't do real work. Like, I have very hardly ever opened my laptop. Like, I need to stop taking my laptop on trips because I basically, like, never use it. Um, mm -hmm. I still can't. Like, I can't. I couldn't not bring it. I don't know. Um, so, but, yeah. So, I think it's some something in between. Like, I don't completely not do work, but I don't do very much. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, have, I I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, yeah, this, this is going to contradict what I just said. I feel like I'm kind of all or nothing with work. Like I do, I need like 
a whole day with no meetings and like the, and no headache, like the right environment, like the weather has to be right and stuff. And then I'm like super, super productive. So I tend not to try to force myself to do like a half hour here, half hour there. Or like, oh, I'm going to be at the airport for an hour. I can do some work or whatever. Cause I'll be so much less productive than if I wait for like, even if it's a third or fourth day after I'm back before I can have one of those all clear days and catch up. Um, sometimes it ends up being like 10 days after I'm back before like I can do some of the more some of the even urgent things and then I feel terrible but yeah yeah I feel like that I'm the opposite the question <laughs> yeah I'm like yeah because I don't think I'm very good at using huge blocks of time yeah yeah I mean yeah. it's I think it's good that people are different and a lot of it is figuring out what works for you mm-hmm Well, should we uh, should we wrap it up? Yeah. We've managed to get through an hour without Alexa getting carried off in a tornado, Still here. and uh, it's <laughs> it sounds like Samin's roofers have uh, uh, finished uh, their work, or at least I haven't heard any banging recently. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, cool. Well, thank you everybody for listening. This is the Black Goat Podcast, and we'll be back with you next time. <laughs>